You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is former cricketer and England coach Peter Moores. Peter had a long first-class career as a wicketkeeper with Worcestershire and Sussex and retired in 1998 with over 800 dismissals to his name. He became coach of Sussex in 1999 and led them to their first ever Division I County Championship in their 164-year history in 2003. He went on to coach England youth and development squads before being appointed coach of England men's team in 2007, but he was unfortunately sacked in 2009. Peter was then appointed coach of Lancashire and delivered their first championship in 77 years, making him the only coach to have won the championship with two different counties. This led to him being reappointed as England cricket coach in 2014. Peter is a master coach with an elite sense of what it takes to create a successful team environment. He is also someone who embodies the principle of persevering and continually learning. There were so many great moments for me in this interview, and as I listened back to it, the things that connected with me most were his thoughts on how a great coach has the ability to see somebody for what they could be rather than what they are, how doubt grows naturally within us, but belief doesn't. It needs help to flourish, and the job of the coach 
is to help the player build belief through what he calls performance accomplishment, and how taking on the problems of players robs them of the development opportunity that comes from solving it for themselves. Wherever you are listening, and regardless of your sporting background, I'm sure you will find this interview as insightful as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Peter Moores, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Great to be here. Can I just ask a really simple question? Where are you in the world today and what have you been up to? So I'm at the moment in a place called Upper Broughton, which is about 20 minutes drive from Nottingham. And my day has been at Trent Bridge, really, at the county ground. We're still training, so we have a winter programme which we run. And basically the way the winter programme runs, we have about 14 or 15 pros in there at the moment. It's, it's like an individual programme in a sort of squad environment because the winters for us, if you haven't gone away with a franchise or with an England team or anything like that, it's your chance to grow as a player, to improve as a player. So you're trying to identify with the players what they've got to do and then we work away. So we started off this morning on the artificial outside at Lady Bay in minus one, very cold, doing a bit of running and fielding with softballs, obviously, but great, just nice to be outside. You know, the lads come inside and then start doing their individual skill work and stuff like that. So that programme runs mainly Monday to Friday at various intensities as we go through. And then, yeah, and then got back probably about four o'clock to have a quick change up and ready for the podcast. Thank you very much for finding some time to come and talk to us. I just want to flag up front, I am an Australian, but I was born in England. That said, I don't want to talk about any test matches that happened at Trent Bridge. So if we can just leave that, that's <laughs> quite good. Peter, actually, I wanted to start with a question around, you've had such a long career and you've travelled all over the world and we will get into, into that as we move along, but... You've had this wonderful exposure to coaches in many different continents with many different teams and yourself as a player. And I'd like to just start with a really broad question, which is what is it you think the great coaches do differently? I think the first thing any great coach has is this ability to see somebody for what they could be rather than what they are. We do it naturally as parents. So we all look at our kids. You see a five, six-year-old and you can imagine them being something great, from an astronaut to a footballer to a ballet dancer, it doesn't matter. You can imagine easily, and so can they as, as kids. The big challenge, I think, for great coaches or any, anybody working with people, really, is can you keep those dreams alive and help them? Anybody kills a dream, it should be the person whose dream is. They move their dream somewhere else. But somebody without a dream, without a vision, without something to go for, it's a shame. And I do think that, Certainly in the Western world, we're very good at killing dreams. We're really good at telling people to, to not go for this and play safe and do that. I think coaching's about, it's a shared journey. It's about often you can see what somebody could be before they can. And when they suddenly see what you're seeing, because you do some work and they start to improve a bit, suddenly, wow, now it's not work. It's just great fun because the excitement now of moving to somewhere else. And in some ways, letting that brilliance out. So, as I say, I think the great coach has this ability to look inside somebody and think, yes, come on, it's in there, let's help you get it out. Rather than the other way around of saying, well, I've got all the expertise, I'm going to try and shove it into you to make me great. It's the other way around. You said something so interesting then about keeping people's dreams alive. Maybe if I could follow up and ask you, is it possible as a coach to get someone to dream or does that need to be innate? Well, I think as a coach, you always get excited when someone's got a clear picture of what they want to be already. If you meet a young man, a young woman, if they've got a vision of the sort of performer they want to be, that I think 
makes it really clear for them and to what they've got to work at to get there. And you can help them on that journey. I think for some people, you need to help them a little bit. You can't give somebody a dream. It's got to be theirs. It's got to be the enthusiasm. But sometimes people hide them a little bit because they think, maybe I'm not good enough. We've got this thing called doubt that sits in us all the time. And you're trying to free people up. So the first thing you have to do, I think you have to do as a coach, is you create an environment where it's okay to mess up. It's okay to fail. Because if we go to the academics, the only way to learn is to make mistakes. So the first job I have as a coach is if I go somewhere, is can we create this environment where basically it feels safe? Very similar to your family feels safe. You're loved by your family. So you can be challenged by your family because they know they're doing it with your best intentions. You can debate what's the right thing to do. That, to me, is where people start to realise those dreams. Actually, well, I thought we could be good, but actually now I'm starting to realise I could be really good, and now this dream is starting to grow. Could I? Oh, yeah, I think I could. And you're there to just – you've got to keep their feet on the ground to a certain degree. There's work to be done, but it's not to squash it because I've watched a lot of players over my time, and nobody really knows where a player's going to go to. They really don't because they go through these jumps. Learning is not a linear process. It's a non-linear process, so it doesn't go in a straight line. It goes all jagging up and down, and suddenly you have a slump. You're not quite sure, and if you stick with it, the coach's job then is to, to stand by him, be enthusiastic, keep him moving, and then suddenly, whoa, we, we go again. And that, to me, becomes so exciting watching somebody go through that process because if it was just straightforward, everybody would do it. It's not. Learning and growing and moving – it comes through experiences and coaches try and provide those experiences along with all the other things in somebody's life to help accelerate. Peter, I've got this quote from you. I'd like to play back to you at this point. Yeah. Coaches by nature are carers with a critical eye, which is a bad combination. Why do you think this? Well, it's not a bad combination if you get it right. So caring and critiquing somebody you want them to get better, you see the fault, and you find yourself, if you're not careful, forever talking about what's wrong and not what's right. So you focus on weaknesses rather than strengths. Well, again, you come to the great coaching for me, you have to help people identify. To become a really good player, you're going to have identified your point of difference, the area where you can maximise. So all professional or elite sport is normally based on how well you play but also how badly you make somebody else play. And often you make somebody play worse because they see how good you are at something, not how poor you are at something. So the coaching should reflect that. So it's sort of a bit of a buzzword in coaching. Now they call it super strengths or whatever. For me, I've always looked at it really that you have to spot a weakness and help the player recognise. If that weakness is at a point where it's below a threshold, so it's going to be exposed and make them fail, then that has to be improved to the point where you can't see it anymore. And then you're really going to go back on those strengths because most sports have got a technique and a method. That makes sense. So my technique might be how I swing the bat as a batter. My method's how I apply it. That makes sense. So the key here is the method should show off your strengths and hide your weaknesses. So anybody who watches cricket, Alistair Cook, brilliant player with a fantastic method. So he's a very strong leg side player. So if he sticks to his method, he leaves really well outside off stump, make the ball the ball straight, hits him in the leg side. It goes to his strengths. If he just focuses on his weakness and he could spend all his time trying to become a better cover driver and offside player and just focus on his weakness. And then his whole game starts trying to base about cover driving and not going to his strength. So he plays at balls he didn't need to. 
and they never bowl at his strength, which is the legs. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're always helping a player. How do I apply what I've got? It happens in business the same. <laughs> if you're a fantastic making something is only as good as your process is to help people want to buy it and see what it is. Sport is no different to that. You'll have something. So I've got real pace as a bowler. How do I apply that the best possible way? Often it will be to be up on, will be full of a length rather than short off because people will sit back because of my pace. And trying to help people understand that, that's method. A lot of coaches just coach technique and don't coach method. I think coaching method, talking to players about how they apply their strengths is a great thing. And going back to your question, the danger of the slightly overcritical coach, the analytical coach, he sees nearly too many faults and you really have to balance that. So when I first started coaching, the video was a fantastic tool, but it's also potentially quite a dangerous tool because we all don't look perfect on video because it's a fluid motion. So you have to balance those out as a coach when you expose people to areas of weakness and strengths because you're, you're dealing with the whole belief the belief balance as well with that player, the self-belief, because there's a point when for a player, too much critical appraisal actually starts to take away some of their belief. And that's a really fine balance. Peter, where did this come from? This philosophy of focusing more on the strengths and trying to develop those method over, over technique, where did that come from? I think for me, it came from, I, as a player, I've played for a long time and love playing, but like all players do, we all suffer what I call doubt, doubt, worry. And you've had, at different points in your career. So I, my first real sort of dealing with it was when I got released or by Worcester. I was at Worcester, got released, went away to Zimbabwe, and I'd suddenly been let go by a counter. I didn't know if I was going to get a job. Eventually, I got signed by Sussex when I was away, which was great, and then had a career there, but I didn't know that. And suddenly, somebody's saying, well, we don't think you're good enough to have a contract here. And then the doubt. And what I, what I didn't know at the time, but as I started coaching and working with people, and I've coached quite a lot as a player in the winters and stuff, you look at people, and I started to understand that what doubt does, doubt doesn't need anything to grow. It grows all by itself. But belief needs help. And belief is the thing that fights doubt. It's the enemy of it. Self-belief. So I started to think as a coach when I started to work out. The job of the coach is to help the player build self-belief because without self-belief, you can't play. If you don't think you can, you can't. Full stop. It's like a Ferrari without petrol. It's a great-looking car. It doesn't go anywhere. Stuck. So how does a player build belief? Well, the only way to build belief, if I look it up, is performance accomplishment. I have to do it. I can't talk about it. I have to do it. So then I'm thinking as a coach, my job as a coach is to create situations where they can do it. And if they do it and do it well, fail to start, get better and better, they'll then believe they can. So if I want to bowl at the top of off stump in cricket, for instance, if you do 24 ball challenge and I have 24 balls at the top of off stump, if I get 12, then I'll get a 50% fine. If I do it for the next four months and I got that up to 20 out of 24 and I'm now starting getting up to 85%, when I go and play in the game, I'm going to believe I can go top of off stump. That's practice that has a focus it's linked to the game, it's challenging, it's fun, it's competitive. But actually what it does is it builds belief. And the key then is when the player doesn't do so well, maybe to start with, the coach just supports. We're not judgmental here. The coach doesn't need to be the judge in all this, really. The game does that all for us. The game is the judge. If you get wickets and runs, you're a good bloke, you're a good player. If you don't, you need to adjust. And that to me is... If coaching goes wrong for me, people want to be judge and jury on the player. The sport you play will do that. 
if you're a striker and you score goals, you're doing something right. You transitioned into coaching quickly after retiring. In your third year as a coach, you were successful in winning the second division. Yep. Two years later, you win the first division title, Sussex's first championship in their 164-year history. What did you put in place when you first became coach that fueled that result? Well, like when you first start anything, I had bags of enthusiasm and drive. I'd coached quite a lot outside of being a player. And I became, I, became, I was captain in 97, then maybe player coach 98. And after about six weeks, we played a game at Arundel Castle, actually. And I, let, I was keeper. I let two four buys through Mark Robinson, who eventually went on to become a coach and coached after me. And I knew why I'd miss him because I was watching his action because I was coaching in the game. And I got home that night and thought, I'm going to end up doing both jobs average here. This is wrong. So we'd had Chris Adams as captain and we had Mike Bevan coming over as our overseas. So we now had more experience on the field. So I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to pack in. So that overnight, I came in the next day and said, right, I'm going to retire. I'm going to coach. So that was where that came from. And basically at the time, I made so many mistakes, but we had a young team and they were making mistakes. We were all making mistakes together, if I'm honest. And we were winging it a bit. And me and Chris got on well. Not straight away. We had our, we had our ructions to find out. But we came to a pretty clear agreement. My role was to prepare the team. His job was to lead the team on the field. And then we'd have moments when he would be better than I would and times when I could do things differently to him. And so we started to get a nice system. And we started to, we had young players coming through. And we wanted to build. I always had the vision with Chris, I think. We had to build this culture that was going to be fun and we had a moment if I'm honest the year before we won we won the second division I think the year before that we finished bottom of the second division getting beaten by an innings by Gloucester at home and I had to present the awards to the lads and went there these straight at the end of the season uh, and I was on the committee balcony and there must have been 250 fans very cheesed off most people had gone and I'm with a microphone and I'm having to go through this sort of torturous process of going and the batter of the year is X and the bowler of the year is Y and the player of the year is, and we'd had a terrible end to the season. We'd done pretty well halfway through and we suddenly train smashed. After that, we went in the dressing room and it was the end of the season. So we all had a few drinks and every sat there and something really special happened for me in that we sort of made a promise to each other that we weren't going to play to win a trophy the following year. We we're going to play to win respect, respect of our fellow pros and of each other and how we went about it and how we worked. And that, to me, became one of those moments whereby suddenly we started to do better because the winter was fueled around, don't think about the outcome, let's just work to improve. And that really started to build my thoughts on coaching and development because we started to get better. And we started to, we were less distracted. The modern phrase of staying in the now, we were in the present, we were just doing it, enjoying it. And then we started to win. And we didn't start, I don't think that season, absolutely out of the blocks. But as we won a game, we gained some confidence. We were workers anyway because we got used to working through the winter and we improved. And by the time we'd won that second division, we had a, we had a way of going about it. And then that started to build. And then, like most things, to become a great side, you need great players. We'd have people like James Kirtley who had really started to fly. And we signed Mushtaq Ahmed. Mushtaq Ahmed was a bit like signing Harry Kane. Rather than a one-all draw, somebody popped up and scored a goal in the last five minutes, and that was mushy, and we started winning games. And we got over the line. So brilliant fun, because it was a really a shared experience between everybody. Lots of input from coaches, players, admin staff. Everybody got stuck in. Really tight club. 
And that built a culture that then went on and won more trophies, which is great to see. What's interesting about your story, Peter, is that lightning strikes twice because in 2009, you let go from the England job and you went back to coach Lancashire straight away. No break, straight into it. And in 2011, you lead them to their first championship in 77 years. And I imagine that must have given you a lot of satisfaction to know that you could come back as a coach and that the methods and the tools that you have were, were working. But was there anything that changed in your philosophy or style after the England job when you went in to Lancashire? Yeah, there was actually. And basically, I'd come into the England job. And in the first time in England, I pushed too hard, if I'm honest. I'd come straight out of Sussex, youngish team. We matured into a better team and we'd grown together. And then my style as a coach wasn't flexible enough, if I'm honest. So the younger players loved it because they were all pushing and whatever. But some of the older players, they needed more time. They needed more input. And I wasn't giving them enough. And so that really made that I built strong enough relationships there. That, that's what affected that. So when I came out of that job, I'd learned already by the time it happened, just sort of learned. And it's frustrating because I'd already learned in the job really and you wanted a bit more time to start to implement that. But when I came out, I got to, to Lancashire. When I first came out, you get bruised and battered when you come out of a job. Of course you do. And then I'd gone for the interview of it and going through the interview process, got very excited about the job and the challenges it held. And then got in there and sort of made a promise to myself a little bit that I wasn't, I was going to let it just happen. So where my style, if I'd gone into probably the England job, I might have a meeting and say, right, lads, this is how we're going to go about it. What I did by the time I got to Lancashire, I wanted to create the need for a meeting by basically speaking to everybody, find out what was going on and suggesting in conversation things that I thought that might be really great. Because somebody had told me once, if you want something to happen, tell a lot of people. So I told a lot of people, wouldn't it be great if we just had a great time? We all worked hard. We got stuck in and we started doing these things. Then over the course of about three to four weeks, people were coming back to me and saying, I think we should just all get stuck in and work hard. And it was sort of coming back to me. By that point, I could then say, right, I think we should have a meeting about this. What do you think? By the time we have the meeting, I can then go, John, Dave and Steve, I've got a few things they want to tell you about. They've got some thoughts about something. By then... They're going, lads, I think we've got to do this, this, and this. We can't have any negative speak. We've got to speak a bit more about this. We've got to do that. What do we think? Then the group decide, yeah, let's give it a crack, and off we go. So I'm not telling anymore. It sort of grows the other way around. And it's a bit more organic. It's more fun. It's more in tune with building on something that's already there rather than trying to bring in your regime. And that fitted me and my style. And... So it's something I've, again, you sort of learn as you go along that that's, it's a quick, one, it's quicker. Two, you make less enemies doing it. So less people pulling you back. And three, I think you're more likely to get the decisions right because you're getting a really good picture about what is in place at the moment and what's there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, that's a great story. I think I'll pinch that one actually when I set up my next team. <laughs> when you first started coaching, I've read articles and I've heard a couple of interviews where you talked about being on a mission to try and collect everyone's problems. But as you got further along, you learned to switch off at the end of the day. And I'd like to ask you, do you have any tips or ideas for other coaches or even people that are listening on finding that balance and learning to switch off? Well, I think I'd go fairly brutal on it in some ways. In some ways, when you first start coaching, I first started coaching, you're nearly looking for problems so you can help out and fix them. You think that's your job, to be the sort of answer to everybody's challenge. Over time, I learned a really important lesson, I think, about if you take somebody's problem from them, first thing you do, you rob them with a chance to solve it. Two, they expect you to solve it. If you don't, then they blame you for it. And thirdly, if you do solve it and tell them the answer and it doesn't work for them, they blame you again. So it just doesn't work. It, it just fundamentally doesn't work. So now I would firstly, if somebody can't, I don't know, if, they, if they're struggling around bowling straight, for instance, they're going to be, what do I think I should do? I said, well, the first point is you have a challenge because unless you can get past this one, then I don't think you're going to advance to where you want to be in the game. So you've got to, you've got to be able to either increase pace or spin it more or defend better and off some, whatever that thing is. So it's your challenge. I'll be here to help you with it. I'll work all day with you. Do what you like. We'll, we'll talk it through. You have to work that out. Because realistically, you can't have two systems in your head when you do anything. You can only have your own system. So if as a player, I say the best way to play the ball moving around off something is to do this, this, and this. And they try to do that. Even if it's right, if it doesn't work straight away, they'll ditch it and blame me for the wrong information. Whereas I can give them options. They have to choose to try them out, and then they have to decide whether they can put it in their game. So one, I wouldn't take on anybody's problem. That means when I go home, the second thing I have to do is be present wherever I am because probably Tom and Natalie would have been, my two kids would have been probably about, I don't know, six and nine or something like that or whatever. And I remember coming back, coaching at Sussex, sitting in the chair, and my wife Karen said to me, you might as well not be here. You're looking straight through me. I said, no, no, no. She said, no. And she, she used James Kirtley, actually. She said, well, if you're James Kirtley, you'd have a conversation with him. All are in your head is cricket, 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 cricket. And she was right. So I thought, well, she's got a good point. So I've got to learn to get rid of that. So then I started to go on a bit of a mission. How am I going to do it? Car journey home, get it out of my system. So when I come back, I could be in the room. So, and over time, I've heard different people explain it different ways. The best way I've heard it explained in some ways is to use the frame in, in the room. A guy called Nigel Risner who was on a UK sport thing. So I was the listener to him presenting. And he talked about the power of engagement, of being involved in something. Uh, and he talked, his story was really, he made a fortune in the city. He was, a, he was a tennis player who got to junior Wimbledon and about 21 decided he wasn't good enough and decided to can it. And then went to work in the city, worked for a company, eventually set his own business up, made a fortune by 32. Then by 34, he'd lost a lot in the crash 
went home to his mum's, he tells, and basically got drunk. And then eventually had this moment when he realised how he made his fortune. Went back in the city, phoned his mates up, told them how he did it, and basically said, let's go do it. And they made another fortune. He's still got the fortune now and goes around the world speaking to people about how he made it, lost it, and what he did. And so if you're listening to him, you're getting quite excited now because you're thinking, aha, he's going to give me the key to make a fortune, which is, you know, decent thing on anybody's radar. And then he says, what the, the key is to be in the room. And you sort of go, right, okay. He said, no, you don't get it in the room. And he said, in the room, it means you're totally engaged with whatever you're doing. So he said, at the moment, in the room now, you're not thinking about emails you've got to send. You're not thinking about the traffic on the way home. You're not thinking about speaking to your son. Or you and me are just connected. That's it. And he said, I'm presenting. I'm totally in the room. I'm in. I'm giving you my heart and soul now. I'll give you that for the next hour. And then if I go home, you have to go put yourself in that room. And he said, if you don't believe me, he said, go home tonight. And when you go and see your kids, give them an hour. No phones, no nothing. And just listen. Be totally attentive to everything they want and just be there for them. He said, you'll be absolutely amazed. So I got home with Natalie, sat down there for an hour talking to her. She'd have been 14 or something like that, 15 maybe. And she started telling me stuff that I'd never heard before about stuff at school, her mates, where things were. I walked away after and I was amazed. Enough that she still talked about that conversation two or three years later. And I thought, wow. And the way the world's geared at the moment with phones and everything, we always tend to be doing three or four different things at the same time. So half of coaching to me is being totally immersed in where you are. So if I'm in a net, if I see coaches on the phone in the net, I'm thinking what are you doing? How can you be in two places at the same time? You cannot do it. Texting, you can't do it. Give yourself to something. At the end of it, give yourself somewhere else. So that helped me really in home life because at work today, I am fully, fully on. Get in my car and I'm coming home, then I'm going to be fully on here. Then I'm going to go and watch a film. I'm fully in my film or whatever it is because it sort of helped me because I am like a lot of people are who enjoy something. We get a bit obsessed about it at the time and that's real. And often it helps success, but there has to be a cut off switch for this sort of this life balance thing. And at times it's really busy. So I know I'll be on all the time and Karen understands that. So we're getting towards the end of a tournament. It's full on. Then I think everybody accepts that it's going to be really busy, but you're trying then to catch that up. Maybe at times aren't so busy. You're trying to get this, give and take a little bit in life that, that seems fair. I wonder if, if this connects to this idea of relaxed efficiency, which you talk about in technique. And you've also said it must be very hard to have relaxed efficiency when the camera's on you and everybody's watching. I'm wondering, how do you coach players to actually reach that optimum state where they're in the room, they're relaxed and they're reacting to what's in front of them? Well, you try and help them. The player has to do it. I mean, I think, if sport is an art form, really, you know, it's a mind, body, spirit thing. Because of that, it has a rhythm. And each person's rhythm will be slightly different. We can hit three people sing the same song. Each will sing it slightly different. There's one version we go, wow. And normally because it's connected to that person. And it's the emotion of them nearly coming out to that song. Well, sport is not that different. So flow, whatever flow is and definable at, that's that moment where you're just doing it. And to do that, you have to help the player get lost in what he's doing a little bit. So he's just doing it. And they, there is processes to help that. There's no doubt about that. 
and it, it's knowing what the goal is. So, I mean, like, you know, there's a great line by ballet dancers, and I think they call it, the goal is to not see the effort behind the movement. It's a lovely line. Very difficult to do, and that is really because you're in rhythm. You're in rhythm for you. And so a lot of rhythm comes from being relaxed, smiling, being happy, being comfortable in your environment helps you be relaxed. So take coaching, for instance. Yeah, one of the classic ones for me is a trial. You know, you watch lads come for a trial, and they're being the first thing you've got to do at a trial, I think, if you get any kids involved, is spend some time getting them relaxed because they're all going to make mistakes all over the place until they're relaxed. You can't coach anybody until you feel like you've gotten somewhere where you're actually seeing them, not them trying to be the version they think you might like. You want them to just be there, warts and all, because that's fine. So that, to me, becomes the environment. The environment helps you do that and then lower expectations sometimes. You know, you can help people. If I want to ramp it up on somebody, I would say something on the lines of everyone coaching a 15-year-old, for instance, or a 12-year-old. I might say, well, I'm going to make it really difficult. I'm saying I expect you to do really well at this because I think you're that good a player. And that's really going to cause it, put him under a lot of pressure because if he doesn't, then I'm saying he's not good enough. If I want to take it all off and help him get to flow, I'm going to say something on the lines of, listen, I'm going to give you something to do that I wouldn't really expect an 18-year-old to do but I'm giving it to you as a 12-year-old just for a bit of fun. You'll never be able to do it. It'll be impossible, but have a go. See what you do. It's a bit of fun. It's like, it's like going on Xbox level 28, mate. You're going to get blown up all the time. Just have a bash. See what happens. And sometimes you go, wow, because they take it all off themselves and they go. And then they actually suddenly see what's inside them and they start seeing what you're seeing. And again, I say, I go back to that first thing. Can you help them see what maybe you see, which is a better version? And suddenly, wow. We're moving. We're going. I wonder if this idea of have a bash, see what happens, isn't your philosophy for life. Because your story, there's a theme in your story, which it's, I don't know whether resilience is the right word, but it's just bouncing back. Over 800 dismissals in your career, the only coach to ever lead two separate counties to the championship, and you coached England twice on two separate occasions. So it seems like you're not afraid to just have a bash and see what happens. I guess the question is, this whole idea of resilience, having a bash, how do you, what tips do you have for other people on embracing that as an idea and not getting caught up in the fear of failure or self-doubt? I think for me, coaching-wise, I made a promise to myself at the start of coaching on my very first job that I was going to be true to myself, really, and that was because I loved it and I sort of decided in my head that, and I remember speaking to Karen about it and saying, well, would you be happy if I coached the school? And the kids went to school and she went, yeah, yeah, fine, of course. Of course. We, just, we have a good life, no problem. So then I sort of said, well, okay, because I'm going to do it my way. It might not be good enough, so I might get sacked. And if I do, then we'll, we'll, I think I'd always get a job and something like that because I think I can coach, whatever. So again, it's sort of lower expectation. I felt I could be a really good coach, but okay, there's my, there's my safety valve. So I'm not going to try and hold on to a job. I'm not going to try and hold my job. I want to keep my job. I want to grow, but I'm going to try and help people get better. So when I first started coaching, it was really difficult to do. So I reckon my mistake with England in the first time was I was trying to prove a point that I could coach and that gets in the way. I think now I try and help other people prove their point. And through that vehicle, then by producing you win. So, you know, at the moment, at the moment I run at not so winning one day stuff, we've got a good one day team. Part of that role is that you're trying to, you create opportunities as a coach to let people go and play. If they play really well, 
and you have a little bit of luck at the right times, then you can get over the line. You've got to be in and around it all the time to get there. And that to me is, that's probably where I, I do it. I've always wanted to have a go at stuff, if I'm honest. The resilience thing is you have your moments. The second time I got sacked by England was the hardest one for me by a long way because it was such a short space of time and I was a good coach and I, it felt unfair at the time. I was trying to get over that and then my eureka moment for me was when I was sat on the decking in the garden drinking a bottle of Rioja, feeling sorry for myself and I had my moment when I thought, basically, what am I doing? The game doesn't owe me anything. It doesn't owe me anything at all. I've been in it since I was, well, since I was eight but the pro game since I was 18, I've played, it's made me a living. I met my wife, my kids, my son loves playing, I've coached England. What am I doing? Just get on with it. Get on with it. And that really was my, I think from that moment on, that whole idea was I, I don't want to be a victim of anything, really. I just want to go out and, and be. You can't always do that. You try, but doubt is real and we all fight it at times. Do you do tricks in your head as best you can to get out and, and, and be the best you can? You've had your fair share of dealing with conflict along the way. A certain English player was particularly difficult. I don't think I need to give the person's name any more airtime than they already get. Based on your experience in dealing with conflict on, on the field as a player and then in the changing room, what advice do you have for others on surfacing it and dealing with it? Well, my style now, and I think it's been for a while now, really, would be you don't want to tackle it often there and then because there's emotion often involved. The biggest mistake I think people make is saying, I'll wait for the right time because the right time never comes. So if I see something I don't like in a dressing room, and it's normally based around certain principles, so it might be based around if somebody's taking somebody else's belief away because there might be... There's two sorts of banter that go in a dressing room for me. There's, there's what I would say funny banter and cruel banter. Cruel banter attacks the person. If I heard something like that and I didn't like it, then I would go to the person and say, whoever it is, and say, listen, any chance we're going to get a coffee tomorrow morning at nine o'clock before training? And they might say, what's it about? I say, listen, it doesn't matter. Let's just grab a coffee, me and you, nine o'clock. I just want to talk to you about something. They then go home. They know something's coming. I know I can't get out of it. There's enough time then that emotion's now gone. So then we can sit down and then at that point I can say, listen, yesterday this happened. I really don't think, I don't know if you realise you were doing it. I don't think it's the best thing for our dressing room. I don't think it's helping whoever. And I don't think it's, it's really part of you. I don't think it's something you want to be doing. What do you think? And then you have the chat. Now, they could turn around and say, well, I think you're talking rubbish. But at the moment, there's no emotion in it. But often people do things, I don't quite realise they're doing it sometimes. And there's an education bit or there's just a realisation. Oh, crikey. And then you can then say, well, okay, are you happy? You try and do it. If I see you do it again, are you happy for me to mention it to you? Yes. Okay. Well, then you've sort of got a deal. The person goes and tries and finds his own way because you don't want to stop mic-taking and stuff like that, really, because it's part of the fun of the game. <clears throat> but you also want to balance it out. And that becomes, that would be how i do it. I think one of the dangers of coaching now is, is becoming too bland, where coaches basically, they can only ask a question and what do you think? There is times as a coach when you think that isn't good enough, it's sloppy. And then you, you make your decision on when you're going to say and not say, but you've got to be true to yourself and fair. Otherwise, as a coach, you're not probably interesting enough for a player. 
the players often you get, especially when you go up the ladder, they're sharp. They're good. They're, they're, they're sharp minds. They're ambitious often. They want to move things forward and they want to make their own decisions. And I think you've got to try and create opportunities for them to do it. I saw a great quote. It's a recent one from you, actually, Peter, and, and I'd like to just read it if I can, because it's a bit curly. I enjoy watching teams and how they perform. They've got a heart that beats and you need it to beat at the right rate. So I wanted to ask you just a broad question. Are there any teams in any sport that you've watched recently that are a really good example of this heart beating at the right rate? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think Liverpool football team, certain last season, when they're on that roll, the confidence and the speed and the physicality and the way they connected was great to watch. It was unbelievable to watch. A team connected. For Jurgen Klopp, I don't know him. I love actually listening to him, watching him coach because he seems an unbelievable connector, connector of people. And you get insights into things. You don't quite know, but you... You watch growth in people, you know, the younger players they've signed from different clubs who talented that he sees in them what they could be. And suddenly you've got players, the two fullbacks, they're growing so fast and they're becoming brilliant players. And I think when I said there's a rhythm, so feelings are great ones to watch. When a side's feeling brilliant, it's like a heartbeat. You can see it squeezing out. It goes in and out as it adds a rhythm. Um, and finding that rhythm for a team... The captain helps a lot, I think, in cricket terms, because it's certainly longer format. But it's a shared thing. You know, people start to really enjoy competing. They accept each other for what they are. They don't have to be great mates as much, but they know there's a connection. There's a connection to what they're going for. And that, it comes out in, in, in sort of like, it's like a team flow. And it's exciting because people start being brave. They look for brave things to do. If you go to a cricket terms, two ways of batting, looking to score runs or looking to not get out. Looking to score runs, you can go and smash the world. Looking to not get out, you're sort of doomed to failure. Two ways of bowling, looking to take wickets, looking to not go for runs. Different mentality. One gives you a lot, the other one doesn't give you anything. Fielding, I'm looking to run somebody out, take the catch. <clears throat> I'm looking to not make a mistake. When teams are in flow and moving, everybody's looking for the positive. What can I do? How can I get in? They're not worried about what if I cock this up. What if I make a mistake? And that to me is beautiful to watch. Wherever the sport, basketball, you know, I mean, we all watched The Last Dance was a brilliant documentary. Yes, it would have had a, it would be through more one person's side of it, maybe, but still to watch the evolution of that team going from how they learned the different lessons to becoming more physical to whatever, to grow to become a great team was, was fascinating. Peter, you're a great student of the game. You always talk, in all your interviews, you talk about learning and wanting to find new ways of doing things better. Probably just a general question. We've had this great opportunity recently to be at home more and had the chance to learn. Was there anything that picked your interest recently that you could share with us that you found particularly useful? Well, I mean, I think the first lockdown we had when you're at home, I think from a big one for me, a personal point of view, was for me and Karen, we had no kids and we were together after having so much going on. So for us two as a couple, it was fantastic. We had a great time. I gardened for the first time properly. I took my first flower bed. But generally, I think for a lot of things for, for me, you start to explore things differently and look at things differently. Podcasts are unbelievable things to gain information from. So I, I always I don't think you actually need to always find something new. I did a bit of bike riding, a bit of other things, but a lot of it is you look at different ways about going around things you enjoy naturally. 
can you look at something differently? You know, that whole idea of approaching a game. So I coach changing the lens if you look at something. So I could walk into a training session and I could look at technique, which is a very common thing that coaches do. I could say to a coach, why don't you put on your who's enjoying it lenses and just look who's smiling, who's having a good time. And if somebody's not, there's a challenge there. What are you going to do to help them? You could put on who's in rhythm. And if you're not in rhythm, they'll be stiff and wood. If they're in rhythm, they'll look relaxed and smiling. You, you can change whatever you want in these glasses. That to me is where I would have learned over time to sometimes even before I do something, okay, try and see it from a different perspective to get a different set of information than what I see. And that I think has been really valuable to me as, as a coach, because if you go to a player when you see something slightly different, so they're not enjoying it and you go to anybody and say, listen, I was just thinking about you, just watching. Looks like you're not really having a great time. Is everything okay? Often they'll tell you something. And it might be really simple for you to fix. It can be, I get worried because I'm late because my mum can't pick me up till this time to get me there. Well, don't worry about it. We'll tell everybody that's what happened. That's not fine. So you can start telling me it's like, it's fine. It's not a problem. You know, I was at Lancashire. We had one player who always was on the edge of it and we were getting frustrated with him. And eventually I said to him, listen, what's, what's happening? He said, well, my wife works nights. So she sometimes works late. We've got a young baby. I can't get out till then. If I catch the traffic, I miss it. So I've gone to the groom, listen, this is the situation. Does anybody mind if he's a little bit late sometimes because his wife has to work late? No, not at all. No one had a problem with it. Then everybody's understanding about it. And the problem, it hasn't just gone away. What it's done, it's basically created a situation where we're saying you're okay to be different. Your situation is different to mine. 18-year-old to a 35-year-old, completely. One's got two kids, one's got none. So the only fair way is to treat everybody differently though they have to be treated fairly. So if I try and treat everybody the same, I'm not being fair. So that to me is partly as you go through, you, you change ways of doing stuff to be more open, I think, a little bit. Show your own challenges sometimes that you're, you're not quite sure the answer. Those sort of things, I think, is where when I learn the most because players teach me huge amounts now because I'm much more open to say, well, not quite sure what you do about that. And then they start telling you stuff and you go, wow. Yeah, great idea. Why wouldn't you do that? And then you can pass that on to somebody else if you want to, if you think it's relevant. Peter, there's many, many years to go before you become a full-time gardener and you get back out into the <laughs> into the back garden working on those flower beds. But when that day finally does come, and maybe it never will, what's the legacy you'd like to leave as a coach? I think the legacy for me, I think, is the way I look at it, is your CV really is the players you work with. That They feel that... You've helped them improve. They do the improving, but you've helped them move. You've helped them improve, maybe not just as a player, but as a person. I love the fact that lots of people I've coached at different times, you still connect to. You don't speak to them all the time, but if you saw them at dinner or you speak to them on the phone, you reconnect straight away because you started to get to the point together of being excited about something they were trying to do at that time in their life. And hopefully that they, they've achieved that. So I think the legacy is much more in the people you work with rather than the trophies you win in some ways, how they look back on the time they worked in the setups that you helped create. Peter Moores, thank you so much for your time this evening. Feels like it's a bit of a masterclass in coaching. Some great tips in there on uh, reverse psychology, let's, let's call it, and managing teams. So thank you very much for your time tonight and uh, all the best for the, for the winter training season. 
Thanks, Paul. Good fun. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Peter Moores. There was so much great wisdom in that interview. It provoked me to evaluate myself as a leader and to think more deeply about how I'm personally addressing and contributing to the team culture that I'm a part of, and in particular, the feedback routines that we have in place. How half of team culture is about being totally immersed in where you are, and this means not diverting your attention. The other parts of this interview that resonated with me were the idea of creating an environment where it's okay to fail, because the only way you learn is to make mistakes, and how sport is an art form, a mind, body, and spirit endeavor. And to perform optimally, you need rhythm. And that comes from being in an environment where you're relaxed, smiling, happy, and comfortable. I hope you enjoyed this as much as Paul and I did. Coming up next on the Great Coaches Podcast, we'll be speaking to rugby coach Alana Thomas. So being calm on the field or on the sideline and the players are out there, they're the ones doing all the hard work. And if they look on the sideline and you're stressed and you're sort of uptight, it sort of rubs off on them. And I think having fun, that's why we play sport. And I think you've got to remember that when you're playing. The coach is really calm in the dressing rooms or on the sideline. They can deliver messages really clear and the players can take that in. They've got really good clarity. Whereas if they're not calm and they're stressed, then they just it's just a lot of noise and the players just can't take it in. So I think it's really important. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Mm-hmm.